0: Couch
1: wisdom. Couch wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Starting her career in the late 1960s, Cozy Fanny Tootie went on to become a seismic force in experimental music. Whether delivering confrontational performance art as part of Coombe transmissions, pioneering industrial music with Throbbing Gristle, or constructing a prototype for Acid House in Carter Tutti, her work has invariably been years ahead of its time. As a result, she has served as both an influence and an inspiration for generations of artists. In her fascinating lecture at the 2010 Red Bull Music Academy, she delved into the emotion, messages, and meanings of her art. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom.
0: So we're very pleased to have Cozy Funny Tootsie. Now, when someone has a discography as long as yours, I mean, we could sit here for probably four weeks talking about the music you've made. Um, We could probably spend 84 days talking about Throbbing Gristle alone, Um, but we only have 90 minutes and some time for you guys to ask questions. So we can't be definitive, we can't talk about everything. And before we even kind of go back and actually talk about the specifics of who you are and where you've come from, I thought it'd be interesting to ask something general about you and the kind of continuing creativity that you've had throughout your whole life. You're still making music and art now when lots of your peers aren't. Why do you think that is? I think the reason I started making music and the reason
2: they started making music is probably why they've stopped doing it and I've carried on. Because I started doing music, I suppose it really began way back in 1969 when I was doing more art. Actions and our performance pieces, that kind of thing, um, where we used to have. I suppose you would look at them and think they were more like happenings, a sort of leftover from the sixties, where we would set up these weird kind of environments from anything we could collect from old, you know, rejects from factories, all that kind of thing, and then we would take instruments along there, and we would play some of the instruments um, amongst all this debris and people couldn't necessarily see us, and leave instruments around for people to pick up and join in. So it goes back as far as that, and the looseness of the approach to music goes back that far. So I've never been orthodox in my approach to music at all, and I've never seen a reason to be. In in fact, when I was sent for piano lessons at 11, I'd already started playing with the piano at home, like a prepared piano, which my father really was disillusioned about because I should have been practicing my scales and things. But I found very little of interest in me doing proper music as it was supposed to be. So um, so I think that's one of the main reasons is that I have a, a different interest and a different reason for doing music to a lot of my peers mm-hmm. is that it was more a way of life for me commentating on commenting on that and my assimilation of events and everything that went on, things I wanted to communicate to people, I did through music. Whereas other people did it as a career, as a way of making um, a place for them in culture and earning a living
0: and being famous, I suppose. And I suppose a pop career is finite, isn't it? It's necessarily finite. Whereas a kind of creative career perhaps is infinite, or at least as long as we continue on this place.
2: Yeah, totally. And no, I think your motive for doing
0: it as well dictates what you do and when that ends, basically. So would you say that you've always been more interested in sound than in what you just described as proper music?
2: Yeah, because I, I suppose as, as a teenager, I, 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 hit, I came in and, and hit the scene of um, more experimental music, really. So I, I grew up through my teens having that kind of attitude to it to it that it it music stirred feelings within you it wasn't a means of just dancing the night away getting out of your head and then going home working through the week or going to college next weekend doing the same thing you know in fact when when a lot of the drugs were going around then in the 60s I looked at a lot of my peers and saw them basically the same as I saw the people in the discotheques getting drunk my peers were getting stoned tripping out doing the same thing at festivals it was just a different thing but they weren't doing anything with what they learned from that experience you know just criticizing the people that got
0: drunk instead of getting stoned you know like there was some big difference there wasn't so do you think maybe had you grown up in america in like the sort of 80s or 90s you might have been a kind of straight edge girl I don't know I have no idea I'm glad I
2: was born when I was born because I got to straddle all kinds of different movements you
0: know. I mean you touched on it a second ago talking about um, using music as or music and art although I know perhaps there isn't any difference for you as a way of touching on things or expressing things would you say that you're kind of um, sort of artistic position is about working out or sort of thinking about feelings and then finding sounds that will reflect that or communicate that
2: yeah because it's all about communicating getting out there so the means of communicating is either art actions visual physical actions or or with the music and then sharing it with people which audience is a very loose term for me because I've prefer that we're all there in the same room together so it's a joint experience. I'm not delivering something that they've got to be passive about. I'm not interested in that. So, um, it's about communication and then feedback and that's what we started when TG began. It was all about, you know, connecting with people and then connecting with other people, much like here, like you're doing at the workshops here, where people get to, you know, suddenly think, oh, actually, we might not, in music terms, have anything similar to each other but in other ways we do have an affinity that's click somehow that then would really be good for a collaboration you know although it's not on the surface it seems doesn't seem likely and it's the same with all the work we do and we've done all
0: these years you know you meet people and and something magic happens <laughs> Now, when people talk about kind of expressing emotion in music, there's usually a kind of um, assumption that you're talking about positive music. When people talk about emotional music, they usually mean kind of happy, love sort of sounding music Mm. in the kind of music that you've made there has been music that's sounded like but that like that but there's also been music that's sounded very strange and disturbing and upsetting sometimes um and extreme certainly and the visuals that went along with that also reinforced that you know the sort of cutting animals heads opens and opens open Mm -hmm. (laughs) um do you think is it easier to make beautiful music or ugly ugly or not ugly is it easier to make beautiful music or hard and disturbing music or is there no difference for you
2: I think when you when you're doing music that addresses really hard issues there's a kind of ecstasy at some point where it suddenly clicks and there's a beauty in it because you've located that feeling deep down inside that's made sense of something that's really hard to face which is what we started doing with TG and and we've continued even after TG finished and and I went on to do Chris and Cozy with Chris and Carter Tutti even today we still do the same thing and as TG regrouped uh, the same again is that I'm, I'm not interested in music that's trite and sings about love on a certain level that everyone can fall in love and have a family and live happily ever after, you know, and go through the fields of corn with the children and all that crap. So I'm interested in what society, culture and human beings are capable of doing to one another, good and bad. And the bad has to be spoken about, has to be discussed, has to be assimilated, and sound is a fantastic medium for that because it it sort of tweaks little nerve endings in you that Bypasses any kind of um, conditioning you've had because it's a very physical thing. You can't do anything about that. So, a lot of music that we do and sounds we use, that's why we use them because it's more about the sounds triggering those kind of emotions than about the lyrics or the chord changes of uh, chords or choruses. Not interested in any of that, mm-hmm. just the sounds that speak to people, really.
0: I definitely noticed a kind of little uh, sort of strong twinkle appear in your eye when you were just talking about that impact that sound can have. And the fact that you shouldn't be afraid of sort of what we think of as negative feelings, strong mm. kind of, um, I don't know what even the word would be. We're kind of very limited in our vocabulary to talk about well, the bad, aren't we?
2: You know, you, you get down to your gut feelings that certain sounds just hit you in the gut.
0: And those are the ones that really evoke the emotions that I'm interested in when you're making music. Um, can you tell us something specific, maybe, or an idea of, of one of the records that you made, perhaps it seems we're sort of in the throbbing gristle area, um, which did that?
2: Oh, God, there's so many. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What have we got on the playlist here, TG? TG? Oh, yeah, hamburger lady's a very good one, Chris. Thank you. David.
1: Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom.
0: Now, you're, you're mentioning Chris. Can you tell us who Chris Carter is and what role he played within Robin Gristle? Um, he's there. <laughs>
2: um... He was the um, the linchpin of TG, actually, because before Chris came into the fold, there was no means of us being able, you know, technically to get out what we had in our minds. So when he started coming to the studio and we started doing jam sessions together, that's when things really started taking off because he had the technical know-how to um, make real the um, the ideas and the um, the way that we could actually start using guitars in a different way to the norm. He knew, he knew how to build certain boxes and things like that that he would do back at his flat and then come over to us in Hackney at the weekend and say, I've got this, let's try this out. So he's the linchpin, really. So I
0: understand in the beginning, before Chris came along, you were trying to do stuff like that. So maybe taking acoustic instruments and then hooking them up to contact microphones but then he came along and and allowed you to do different things
2: yeah what it was was in coom we had the the instruments there all along but like you said it was limited by our knowledge and capability of doing anything beyond that so um when we 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 did a couple of performances where we used contact mics in art actions and and did a couple of electronic festivals that way but um, what we really needed to, to do was to get away from that because it was library music concrete and it was, so, it was a pretty precious area to get into for us, really. and We didn't really want to go in that direction. And uh, the friend that we were working with knew Chris and that's how we met Chris. And one of his friends had already built us um, an amp and a couple of things. And then Chris came along and was building his own synths at the
0: time. And that was just like, wow, you know, <laughs> that's that's really where we want to be now when i was um trying to find out making sure that i had sort of enough knowledge about you and doing the research and whatever and i was reading about the kind of early days of throbbing gristle you think about it externally and it sounds so extreme and crazy and hardcore and full-on in this very passionate way that's not afraid of looking at despair and doom and the kind of that pit of the stomach you were talking about but then you read or hear you talking about things like you just hanging out at weekends and building speaker cabinets and making sounds and then going to the CAF and working out which sounds you liked and then going back and recording them and it, it that sounds different somehow to this idea of you living a very hardcore life um, was that how it was for you? Well we had to eat <laughs> you know, I mean there's certain you know
2: human functions that have to take place in between the creative bit but it was pretty hardcore in Hackney then it's very sort of you know friendly now. Mm. Um, yeah, we we'd sort of chase through the London fields at times by gangs and that kind of thing, and you know we had our um, aggressive moments as well. So yeah, it was it was um, extreme mm-hmm. on all on all levels really because we all had we had our separate lives as well and came together at the weekends. Mm-hmm. So and what we did separately. Had their extreme elements anyway, and then we came together and did things together that were extreme. <laughs> so it was a real mixed pot of, you know, all kinds of weird
0: stuff. And so, how did the kind of squat living um, affect what was happening at this time? Well, we,
2: in terms of what, because it was just an opportunity to get a house and get out of Martello Street studio for me and Jen. Mm-hmm. And that just came about because there was, um, funnily enough, it was a music band that we we just sort of saw in um, the Broadway Market, and they they'd been squatting this house in Beck Road, and they'd just got a deal or something, and they said, why don't you just when we move out, we'll give you the key and you can move in. And that's how we got Beck Road. Mm-hmm. But it meant that we had somewhere to live as opposed to living in a basement studio with mould, you know.
0: I mean, in England these days, there's not really a kind of culture of people squatting houses. Again, for some of you, not. I, mean, I don't know how much squatting happens in other countries, but certainly in the UK in the 60s and 70s and maybe up till the early 80s, in cities it was relatively easy to take over a kind of a house that was empty and just live in it um, and take over. And often people use this as a way of funding their own creative lives. They would live in them, turn them into art spaces, maybe just turn them into kind of hovels, whatever. Um, But certainly there was a culture of of squatting houses and then allowing that, uh, making that a way of you being able to do what you wanted to do in your life. After 12 years or something, living a house, it became legally yours. So there was this law called squatter's rights. And if you'd been there for long enough, you actually owned the place by the end of it. Um, Wish.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Now, what happened down Beck Road was that we squatted it and then as houses came empty we told other people and now it's a just the whole street is just an artist community now mm. but i think most of them owned them <laughs> they bought them in the end mm. rather than
0: waiting for their 12 years to be up yeah mm-hmm. it's easier so um we've kind of talked a bit about robin gristle and those people in the audience who didn't necessarily know the music might start to get an idea of some of the sort of extremities of it as well um, but there was also music that came out through Throbbing Gristle that ended up being really influential for music that maybe you're more familiar with, say Detroit techno people like Carl Craig, who directly referenced the Throbbing Gristle album 20 Jazz Funk Greats on four Jazz Funk Greats. You weren't aware of that connection at the time, were you? Because... No, mm. not at all.
2: Mm. We, we just worked and did what we did. We It like, sounds really not arrogant, but we weren't interested in anyone else really, in the music scene then, other than... I mean, people like the Cabs, the Clock DVA, all those kind of people that were around then. And I think even some of the punk bands like Adam and the Ants, all those people, they used to come around sometimes, you know, Alternative TV, all those people. But um, they weren't about what we were about. It was still... There. What they did was still rock and roll to us, you know. So, But we still, like I said, you don't have to like someone's music to have something in common with them, you know. So... Um, it's it's quite weird because because like I said before, you know, it wasn't a career to us, and it wasn't a career to most of them, it was Adam and the Ants. But um, that's something else with punk. But the cabs and all those people, we there was such a spirit of um, collaboration then because no one had much money. So whatever gear you had, you'd sort of say, look, let's do a gig, and if we all go, then we can share the gear. You know, so it was as simple as that. Yeah. Um, So we used to do a lot of things like that where, you know, we'd we'd have people over and things and then just sort of jam together, that kind of thing. And also we released the cabs first cassette for them on industrial records. Mm -hmm.
0: Cassette. Yeah, cassette tapes. (laughs) (laughs) Could we have a listen to something from uh, 20 Jazz Funk Greats? maybe you choose?
2: Because disco was very big then Um, in the 70s. You know, you had all the um, usual... Saturday Night Fever, that kind of thing going on. So that will give you an idea of how different TG was at the time. It was totally different. Um, so just looking at this, the equipment that Chris was using for that, because he did um, a lot of the prep on the music that we did and he still does as well. Um, he he um, prepares the foundation of tracks that we all then listen to and then decide which we th- feel that we can actually play along with, et cetera, and we make adjustments to it and so on. And there is definitely, a, we can listen to something and all of us say, that's either TG or that isn't, because we just know now. Um, but as I said, he was using, we, we used Vibes, we managed to get some of those. Um, Space Echo, Modular System, Roland CR78, um Drum machine and my cornet. I started playing cornet at the time, and since violin, guitar, through anything and anything I could put it through, played in any way but normal. Um, So that we just basically took whatever instruments and drum machines and everything else since and just did what we felt right and went together properly. Um, So, yeah, the cornet became quite important in TG quite by accident because. Sleazy was the one that brought it into Martello Street, but he couldn't pucker up properly and get a note out of it. So um, he just handed it to me one day and said, how do you do it? And I just happened to do it first blast. So I took over cornet from that day on. And um, he went back to his little sample keyboard.
0: Do you think it's easier to be irreverent with music if you're not classically trained? or if you don't, if you're not to, not even classically trained if you're not told how to do it possibly because i think
2: if there are no rules then you're not aware of breaking any rules are you mm. but i mean sleazy had been trained i think he was taught to play the piano wasn't he like i was but um so he's he's the one of all four of us that every now and again will say well oh, that's not in tune as as if it matters you know <laughs> but for some reason it matters to him you know and you have to sort of like you know diplomatically you know spin things around a bit but I think it is but I, I've always been of the, the mind that if you're not taught how to do something and you come in with a free mind then anything is open to you and anything is possible and I've always found when I've worked with Um, trained musicians is that they seem to have a fallback formula to go on when they suddenly can't think what to do when they're improvising and I think that's the worst thing about being trained is that you have a fallback that's been programmed in you whereas if you've not been trained you have no fallback and your imagination is
0: endless that's quite a scary place to be creatively for most people though what? where you don't know what to do next? I think that's the best place, isn't it?
2: But most people
0: would disagree, I
2: suspect. Uh, possibly, would you disagree? No. no, I think it's the best the best place to be, to be honest, because that's where you've, you find new territory and most exciting territory, I think. I mean, I'm not interested in riffs or anything else like that.
0: And I guess that's the difference between approaching something as a career where you need to have something to fall back on and so that you can continue in your career and doing something just because you want to. Yeah, totally.
2: I mean, working with trained musicians is quite um, a strange experience, really. Because I I seem to sort of feel that I should try and untrain them (laughs) somehow. It's like
0: breaking a horse or something. But, you know, just loosen up, please don't do that. You you mentioned when you were talking about the things that you were using um, at this time. You mentioned the Roland, uh, which you mentioned some. Okay, you mentioned with the baseline. Yeah, some specific equipment machine. That's right. How easy or hard was it to get that equipment at the time? It was really difficult for us because it was expensive, Mm.
2: Um, and we did try and get a Roland deal. (laughs) tg trying to get a rolling deal um and we did a really sort of kitsch you know promo photo for him and sent it in but that was something that we used to enjoy in doing things like that because we knew there was you know hiding to nothing really but yeah it was very difficult i mean when chris got the um 808 he was just like you know he was just so excited he rushed down to rod argent's because he was the one that got the first ones in the uk and chris got one of the first ones but um yeah it was very difficult because we had no money basically that and chris used to make all our stuff but that's where the sound came from as well Mm. so it wasn't a hardship in a way because even when we bought the the gear chris would modify it we
0: wouldn't use it out of the box because you were very early adopters of the 303 and the 808 as well, mm. what what did you think? What, what did you want to do with them when you first got them?
2: Well, we played with them at first as a novelty because we thought, "Oh, listen to this; it sounds just like you know, like." And it, it was it was fun, you know. But then Chris started doing it for real and giving it the TG edge, and that's that's when it sort of came into its own for us, really. And so modifications, what what were you? What were you doing? You can't ask me. The mod man's in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Which mods are you aware of? Well, the one, the first mods you had was on your keyboard, wasn't it? When we were in America with TG. Yeah. And we had trouble getting that out again,
0: didn't we? And back into the country. And so how much do you personally enjoy kind of getting involved in a piece of equipment and learning to use it and seeing what you can do with it?
2: Well, I'm a, a very physical musician. So even if I work with laptop now, I work with laptop and Ableton, but I have to have my Fader Fox. I have the physical contact with things and feel things moving in and going out. So when I get a piece of equipment, Chris shows me the basics of it so that I can get in and start working with it and see what it can do for me. I'm not I don't particularly wanna know the back end story of it and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. to be honest, because I just need to know what it can do because I usually have an, a notion of what I want to use it for. Like Chris say, this will be really good for you because of the way you work, you know. And so I say in what way? And then he'll tell me and then I'll say, Well get it for me, show me how it works roughly, and then I'll start using it. But I mean one of the better one of the good things about that is that if you don't know how what something does or is supposed to do like being trained with an instrument then you come across something and it's happened a few times isn't it in the studio where I've done something they said how did you do that and that's how I don't know but I, <laughs> it sounds good doesn't it and that's what I'm more interested in mm. you know I mean Chris is like is super super clever with gear and I'm spoiling that way that I can call on his expertise you know
0: what pieces of equipment have you enjoyed kind of getting involved with recently?
2: I suppose yeah, the Fader Fox with Ableton has been my biggest shift ever, mm-hmm. and um, doing samples and you know stretching, squeezing live and all that kind of stuff. I really enjoy that. Um, yeah, so I think that was and and also getting guitar rig so that I can you know change my guitar even more. So. It, I mean uh, when we're on stage with TG it's just and I've seen in reviews afterwards you know Sleazy was great on that great bit of so and so and I'm thinking actually he was drinking his wine at that point and it was my guitar but never (laughs) mind but that's the kind of thing that happens within TG you
0: can't tell who does what and that's the way we like it. I mean, you've got hands-on experience, sort of yourself and the outfits you've been involved with, with kind of those key bits of technology throughout the last 30 years or whatever. Um, What do you think are the kind of pros and cons of working with programmes like Ableton?
2: I think the downside of it is that um, you can instantly recognise someone's using Ableton if they're just using it, you know, as-is sort of thing. It does have its own kind of sound but um, I really love it, especially for when we're doing live soundtracks and stuff like that, free-flowing um, material. I think it's it's brilliant for that. I, I did a gig with um, a Russian guy that I did a project with. Um, I think it was a year before last Brussels, wasn't it? And that was fantastic. It's the first time I, I'd used it like on my own with with um, samples I'd done of, of him actually he sent sent me some audio of his voice and stuff and then I'd sort of modified them and everything before I came out and then just played the clips and used the effects within Ableton and everything and it was brilliant I loved it but everyone knows how Ableton works it's it's really good but it's what you bring to it it's not it's not the
0: machine or anything else it's what you bring to it so if we're thinking about the way that technology kind of tipped your music into different areas what was it that tipped you kind of out of i mean obviously throbbing gristle Gristle finished and then you and chris started making music together Mm. as chris and cozy kind of which pieces of equipment kind of tipped you into the stuff that you were doing in the early days of chris and cozy
2: i suppose all chris doing all the sequencing because we were um well, I was still doing striptease then, so I had a load, a lot of different kind of music going on in clubs and things like that, and Chris was really interested in sequencing. And we just fancied doing something more lightweight like that, but with with, a, with an edge to it and stuff, and And that's why Chris & Cozy started off the way it did. I mean, there was a sort of crossover period with Heartbeat and Trance, but then came Love and & Lust and it was... That was Chris and Cozy sound, really. So the,
0: the music was directly related to the artwork that you were doing with yourself as the artwork in the strip clubs and with the exhibitions that you were doing. Are I you did dance to TG. Separate?
2: I danced to United. Did you? Yeah. And the guys in the pubs just couldn't figure out what was going on, <laughs> you know. And I danced to Love Lies Limp by Alternative TV as well. <laughs> that was that was a funny one. And Perubo. Mm-hmm. So I used to bring in... Um, a couple of you know songs now so would, and again. You, would
0: you bring your own music with you when you went to a job very
2: rarely no i was there incognito if you like and that was the best place to be because that's when you get the honest response from people in that situation i wasn't into
0: no no i, I meant more did you transport your own little cd Well, no cd player sorry yeah, your own good. little cassette player with you for the, to press play for the music for the gigs in the the strip what? clubs or was no, it provided there. okay yeah
2: yeah, so did would you, you just
0: slip him some throbbing gristle to play, go on, put this one on next for me? Rarely.
2: Because it didn't go very well with striptease, not at <laughs> all. <laughs> you know, and I was earning a
0: living, you know. <laughs> yeah, that must have been fantastically confusing for the, uh, for the clients or whatever. I, I you used, do.
2: funny enough, Hardworking Man by Perubo, mm. I used solidly throughout doing striptease. It was a fantastic rhythm and it was heavy and it was dirty. Mm -hmm. and it worked really well Mm -hmm. but none of the other people I knew except Eurythmics I used to use some of their stuff
0: so I think now is a time to listen to some kind of early Chris and Cosy so we get a kind of our sense of where we are Mm. um what should we have I don't know do you want crossover or do you want lightweight I think in the spirit of doing what you feel you should do what you feel (laughs) okay because you make music, that
2: as you listen to it, you analyse how it's been made. Mm. And that's one of the pitfalls of making music, that you can't enjoy some music because, or you can hear, you recognise immediately some preset. That's usually what turns me off. And I think, lazy bastard, you know, and then I think that colours the rest of the track for me. Mm. Because I think, how could I think that was, you know, good to put that on there when... It's going to appear in some, like, ad on TV any minute now because no one, you know, someone else has bought it and it's an easier thing to use. So there's that side of listening. But also, I don't know, I think what gets me, when I listen to things, usually what gets me is when I I, I can't figure out how they've done it or I haven't heard someone use that um, machine or instrument in that way before or it just... Sounds totally mental, so uh, that's that's really good because something that's good's going to come out of that at some point because they have just like gone blah, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that excites me, but as for practicing listening i don't know I don't know, I think that smacks a little bit of forcing yourself to listen to something you're not enjoying just for the sake of listening, and there's not enough time in our lives to
0: be doing that. <laughs> when you just talked about um one of the things you like when you listen to things is the idea that something sounds completely mental Mm. um can you tell us about a couple of experiences when you've had that with artists so pieces of music or artists that you've been drawn to it doesn't have to be now although it could be now well it happened yesterday actually (laughs) that's that's handy
2: yeah i went to my myspace just to sort out my friends and all that stuff and um there was a korean girl had sent me a little message just to say, you know, quote, in, on my thing it says, my art is my life, my life is my art. And she said, um, my art is my life too. And so I went to, I clicked onto her MySpace page and went through and, I, and it just said on there, first of all I read, it's something about she's speaking in the third person. She doesn't know how anything works, but she doesn't care. And then I turned on the music, and it was just great. It was just totally anarchic, but it had a kind of feel to it that immediately drew you in, you know, and you, and made you smile. And you think the energy of it came through, which I suppose is what I'm interested in, is is people, you know, charging me with energy with their music. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody
0: is. That's what music's about. Now, again, this also might sound a little bit like the listening question, but I think it's interesting. Is, is there something that you always do before you start doing something? You know, some people need to, I don't know, go for a run or drink a cup of tea or do you know, wear a certain piece of clothing. You know, some people have little things they will do before they start being creative, maybe a way of signalling that they're in that mood, mode, whatever. Um, is there anything that you do? before you make music or is it just
2: no we, we tend to just um we decide that it's about time we should get get working again
0: for <laughs> a start like, yeah, plus four get in the studio
2: yeah because you can't until you get in there and turn all the gear on and start messing around it ain't gonna happen you know mm. so we do that but that's the only thing we do is just turn on the gear and start thinking what kind of mood are we in mm and usually it goes from there some sound you start off with something and you keep adding to it and it doesn't seem to go anywhere and you shelve it and then you, you play another sound thing let's start from scratch and then you suddenly realize actually what we just dumped would sound really good with this mm. and then
0: you go back to that and bring it you know it's the usual i mean if people are talking about music which is considered kind of high culture then they'd always ask how often do you know how much people practice and all that kind of stuff like how often are you in a studio <laughs> well
2: it's it's difficult we don't practice no we're not i'm not we're not interested in practicing i'm not asking
0: about practicing no but what the I'm practice is, of, of making music i know what you mean it's just i'm i suppose i'm interested in how often you're in there or, or perhaps i mean it might be different obviously you've got other things going on because you're a visual artist as well so yeah. there's competing demands on your time between the different aspects of chris what is create. always in the studio mm-hmm. he's never out the studio doing
2: either whether because the studio is where is the hub of everything, including all the website design, everything. So he's either doing website and the visuals are in there as well, with video gear. So he's always in there. So if I'm doing stuff like admin for everything else that we've got to do because we we don't have a manager or anything, we do everything ourselves. So if I'm doing admin for our label or anything else, or answering requests for remixes and stuff like that. He's downstairs sourcing the tapes for things and all the rest of it. So he's more in the studio than I am. But we, as far as practice goes, we spend a lot of time, obviously, with TG stuff. We've we've been in them. So, uh, it's just been non-stop since we got back together again, really. That was 2004? Two, two. 2002. Yeah, we got back to regrouped again. So um, finding the time to do... Our own material, which we regard as Cartootie, really, is more and more difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, we're starting a new album this year, actually. Um, but we would spend a lot of time sort of doing remixes and that kind of thing, So and tracks for compilations. So although we don't do our own stuff, we're still sort of doing music. But that's our lifeblood, is that we're launched into something that's not necessarily our territory, but... It's interesting to us, so we don't ever sort of discount any any kind of um, you know proposals from people, mm-hmm. because that's what we're about. You know, we do a hell of a lot of um,
0: collaborative work in those in those terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the collaborations you've done have been with people fairly close to you, and some of them been with people who were apparently quite far removed. Certainly in terms of the sound of what they did. Um, what for you makes a good collaboration? Um, when it
2: works out, basically. <laughs> but no, a good collaboration is that you have that, um, you fever pitch of, of ideas that you throw at each other, not worrying about rejection, because part of the whole collaboration thing is that somebody has to compromise at some point. This isn't your track, mm-hmm. you know. It's a complete collaboration. So, um, and learning the diplomacy of rejecting someone's idea. You know, you don't say, oh, that's shit. Or you could if you're really close to them, which is what we do in TG. But if it's with someone else, no, you you know, you have to show some kind of respect for
0: any ideas they throw in and kind of manoeuvre around things, you know. Have you got any tips for people who may find themselves in those collaborative situations? Um... From a recent experience of a collaboration
2: going wrong, I would say make sure that you agree at the beginning this is going to be a 50-50 collaboration because that's what the spirit of collaborating is. No matter who does what, without one another it wouldn't happen. So it is
0: 50-50. And what about um, collaboration as a way of expanding what's possible for you to do musically and perhaps taking yourself out of your comfort zone? I think that's crucial to collaborations and I think that's what's so great about them. And what's been an experience that you've had in collaboration that's done that for you? Um, the one I just spoke about that's gone bad, but um <laughs> I mean we talked <laughs> that a was little very bit much like that. About Core and some of the collaborations on the Core album. Um, we talked about Robert Wyatt mm. very briefly. What was that in terms uh, why was that an interesting collaboration for you? Because he's
2: about as far removed away from what we do as anyone could get. Well, not quite, actually, because he is very experimental in his music. But the fact that he's um, he's structured in his music making is very alien to us. But that's what he liked about working with us, mm-hmm. and that's what we liked about working with him. So... Um, it would be working with Robert was a distance collaboration okay. because was, um, he couldn't have got down to our studio physically because of his wheelchair and so on. But also, he was very um, technophobic at the time as well. So, he felt more comfortable sending us stuff um, on cassette, <laughs> <laughs> even though it wasn't long ago. Yeah. Um, so, and he sent me lyrics as well, which were uh, words they weren't lyrics at the time, they were like cut up. So he sent me a load of words and I made lyrics out of them, placed them in the song. And he also sent us some some little snips of his voice going, do, 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 which we put in as a kind of little um, drum beat, really. And then sent that back to him. And then he sent back, and he sent back little harmonies harmonise with bits of my, pe- my uh, vocal and things. So um, it was a great collaboration. And I think the thing with collaborations is, that is, a, a for instance, because if one person seems to have a flow, then I think it, it's good and very intuitive if someone can sit back while they're comfortable with that flow and let it happen. And then come in. And bring things to the peace because if you keep interrupting it, you're never gonna get anywhere and you're just gonna piss each other off. Because it's a bit like saying, I can do better than that. You know, I wanna put my drums in there now, you know. And that's not what it's about. It's about feeling your way through it together. Do
0: you have any of core with you? Yeah, I do actually. When you were talking a minute ago about um sort of this situation at home where Chris is in the studio and you're doing some other stuff as well when you're not in the studio and doing your other art um, you were talking about dealing with requests for people to license things um, which is the song which seems to be most requested or that you're still being asked about or does it change over time?
2: It changes but it, it's usually October Love Song um, "Exotica" has been asked for um, Heartbeat Re-education Through Labour Dancing Ghosts and impulse, mm-hmm.
0: the trans kind of era. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dancing Ghosts—that was one of the first tunes with the 808 on mm-hmm. it, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, um, why do you think people are still interested in that? I
2: don't know. <laughs> I, I think sometimes it's because it's from an album called Trans, and Trans, and that was like when Trans was eighty-two. 82 and um, yet trance as it's known now has come all those years later and yet they look back and they think trance way back then Mm -hmm. and uh, I think they listen to it and make the connection in that way and it's the music
0: on it is quite relevant to today still for that reason and I guess that's the same kind of era as October Love Song as well yeah yeah Um, and it would be nice to give people a kind of sense of what those pieces sound like if Mm -hmm. they don't already know could we have a little burst Dancing Ghosts in those years, we were with those two labels,
2: and we played a lot in America. I think, because we'd done so much live work, it did affect our studio work. To be honest, because it's so visceral when you play live, and you want to get that, you want to get that energy in in the records. But at the same time, the studio gives you that control to get it just how you want it. So, I think in in the '90s, we started thinking about live work. I know it sounds really weird, but live work and studio work as two separate things. We had to, to keep our sanity, really, because there's no way we wanted or could reproduce what we did in the studio on stage. And we sort of uh, accepted that as well as part of our... um, of our, of our approach to our music is that we, we didn't mind the fact that we couldn't reproduce it live. We never did, to be honest, but there was an expectation because of the labels that we'd gone with. You know, I mean, play again some at the time, I had two unlimited, you know. No, no, lame it. And all that kind of stuff. So there was a, a lot of that kind of going and doing PAs to a backing tape. Um, that just wasn't us, you know. So I think in a in that sense we made a mental decision that what we took out live was live and it and that's how it sounded it wasn't going to be the record yes it would be that track mm. and it would be recognizable but it would have a life of its own
0: mm. and there were technological shifts as well around yeah, we, that point we got a computer
2: <laughs> which was like oh wow you know we don't need that huge mixing desk anymore and and that was just That was a huge turning point for us again. Ditch the samplers, you know, all those floppy disks and all that crap. So, yeah, that was a revolution and revelation for us as well.
0: The way you're talking about it, it appears that it made you feel very free to be able to do that. What was it kind of that made you feel, what was the sort of freeness that you associate with that shift?
2: I think when you work with some equipment, you fall into a kind of you know a rut almost and there is a, an end to certain equipment at some at some point and um, even though to us like the S900 and 950 and the 1000 that we got after that it was a sampler and you only get out what you put in it just the physical action of doing that and the way you do that re- repeatedly you you were talking about the practice of recording that in itself starts to to give sort of taint the experience in a lot of ways because you want some other way of putting in and getting out, you know. It's hard to explain, but... And the whole world opened up for us, you know, with software and everything, you know. So we could tweak and tweak to our heart's content, you know. And we didn't have the cost of tape, which was, you know, a big, big factor, you know. We we weren't in a position where we had a big record deal or had an advance or someone paying for us to do this and we had a child to bring up as well and those mundane things do impact on your creative life so you have to start thinking school uniform or read the tape you know <laughs> stupid things like that when you're not earning any money out of your your, your work yeah those kind of small real
0: life things yeah you mentioned earlier, and you just referenced it again. This thing of um, doing things yourselves, not having a manager, not having a big record deal. Um, I mean, there are some obvious advantages and disadvantages. But for you, what's the main advantage of doing things that way?
2: Well, I don't think there's any disadvantage, to be honest.
0: Because, Time. like in what? If you're sometimes people prefer to shove that stuff off for someone else, so they can just concentrate on the music well, I haven't got a clone of me that would know what I want. And that would
2: have to be a manager. manager would have to be that. So I, I would be constantly... If I had a manager going off and doing things like that, I would be constantly checking that they'd done the right thing. <laughs> and it's not a control freak thing with me. It's just the fact that I've never found anyone that could do that yet. You know, not... Even in TG. I mean, we have in TG got a manager, but even so we're constantly going back and forth saying, make sure it's not like that, it's this, otherwise, you know, it's just not going to work. So I don't see a disadvantage other than, yeah, I haven't got all the time in the world to do everything, but the freedom it gives me to be independent
0: is uh, worth it. So was it around the time that you're talking about sort of making a decisive shift between live and studio? Um, so that's... Uh, So which albums are you talking about there or are we starting to get to the point where... Well, from Exotica,
2: I mean, I think Exotica, because that's, would you agree, that was very produced. I mean, even Love and Lust was still a little bit raw, um, but Exotica was the one that was very produced Mm. and we knew when we did that, I mean, we loved it and we knew that we would never going to be able to do this live, but so what, it's great as as a record, you know. So, yeah,
0: that flip happened then. But if you're thinking about the, the last album that you put out, what's the connection between the kind of live any live representation of it and the music itself, and some of the artwork or the films, the vignettes that you've done that go along with it?
2: Well, the, always when we've done and
0: we've as Chris and Cozy, we've always done video um, visuals when we've played live, always, mm-hmm. and and also kind of. Uh, ...destroying or messing about with the video equipment... ...in the same way as you were with the samplers. Yeah, mm. yeah. So the videos were always like
2: cut-ups and mash-ups... ...and all kinds of things going on. But prior to that it was slides and film. So um, there are always multi-layers of things going on. And it first of all start, started, started off where we we wanted people... ...the visuals to not distract people from us but just lose themselves in the sound and forget that we were performing it, because then you get over that thing of someone performing the song off the album, which is what I was talking about, and they go there just for what you are creating for them, right there and then. So I'm not interested in people seeing me on the front of the stage, you know, front in a band or anything. All I'm interested in is doing the music. So it was a way of making them connect with something visual, and those visuals represented... Uh, would represent a feeling or an emotion or a warmth or a coldness about the tracks that we would be playing live. And they still do. But now more so, they're not cut-ups and random because we used to rely a lot on random chants with those, which was great. Um, but now we do little vignettes more for the last album than we did like, vignettes for tracks.
0: So do you have something from Feral Vapours to show us? Yeah, I have a, a video piece. I know external perceptions aren't really what you're interested in. Um, But how do you think external perceptions of what you do have changed over the years? Um, How do people see what you did? How do people see it then? And how do people see it now? And how has that changed?
2: I think just by the very fact that, you know, the way time works (laughs) is that people, unless they come to you from nowhere come to you from knowing some of your history therefore that paints how they see you now that's you know inevitable really
0: and what's the what's the single thing you think you can do to remain creatively interesting or creatively interested it's a difficult one
2: i think to do it for yourself and not i mean i'm that's a contradiction in terms because you're doing it for other people to share it with them but what i'm talking about is you know yourself whether you're expressing who you are the minute you start expressing something for someone else then there's a kind of betrayal there and you've left yourself behind somewhere and it's a long road back because i've known a lot of people like that that have started off doing great music and been um, seduced by Hollywood and everything else and they just can't get back and they're rather unhappy but very rich which seems to go hand in hand but if that's the lifestyle you want, that's fine.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I like that, that idea of sort of, if you betray yourself, it actually being very hard to come back from. Is a really interesting way to suddenly start compartmentalising the routes people take but I guess that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you very much. Thank Thank you.
2: Thank you, everybody.
1: Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about... The Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in London, but we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. Uh, If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at
2: redbullmusicacademy.com.